One of the great sins of our age, and consequently great sins or temptations upon a modern Christian, is self-absorbed pride. On one hand, it is kind of always this way because our hearts are bent that direction, right? I think I was about four when I figured out that I cared about myself more than I care about anyone else. And maybe I was 12, 13, or 14 when I realized that I'm more fascinated with myself and what I'm up to than I am with anyone else. And that's why it's hard to pay attention in conversations when other people are talking about what they're up to. And you know what that feels like, too. Our hearts are bent in that direction toward pride and and self-absorption. Sometimes in eras of history, entire cultures build themselves on those ideas. Now, for many times in history, we know we're prideful, we know we're selfish, and we fight against it. But sometimes the mantras that are around us and the things that the world around us is teaching us line up right with those prideful and selfish ambitions of the heart. And we're living in one of those ages right now where the mantras you hear about are are self-care and self-love and follow your heart, right, and be true to yourself, right? The the great value of our age is know yourself, care for yourself, express yourself, and it's the job of society to affirm you just as you are. Now, if we are going to make it as Christians who are called to turn from self to the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, And the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. We are going to need help from God to make it all the way to the end. And that is what the Lord gives us today in these last two verses of 1 Corinthians, verse 30 and 31. If you're just joining us, we're deep now into a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're calling Holy Love. Uh, This book was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, to call them back from the rampant immorality and self-centeredness that was around them in the city of Corinth, which they had fallen to, back to a life of holiness and love. And we have found it so useful so far, protecting us and warning us against some of the very same temptations that are upon us today in a world that is decadent, in a world that has fallen to consumption of the self. We look today at the last two verses in chapter 1. That is verse 30 and 31. Let me read them for you. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those are the words of the Lord, and may God make through them a people that tremble before him and what he has done, a people who boast in him and are so fascinated with him that the last thing we could become absorbed with is ourselves. This paragraph, verses 26 to 31, really builds up to that last line, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it is essentially an application, a reference to some words that the prophet Jeremiah once said in chapter 9 of his book. I believe it's verses 23 and 24 if you ever want to look it up. What Jeremiah says is, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom 
And let not the powerful one boast in his power, his strength, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and righteousness and justice and mercy. So what he wants, what God wants, he says right after that, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. What delights the Lord is a people who are so fascinated with him that we boast in him. Someone who loves him and has tons of money but isn't fascinated by the money and isn't interested in the money but says, can I tell you what the Lord has done for me? Someone who has great power or maybe not very much power but isn't interested in how much power they have but is interested in the Lord and boasts in the Lord. And he uses those three poetic categories, the wise one, the powerful one, and the rich one to say that. Well, in the paragraph we've been looking at for these last two weeks, he starts in verse 26 and he says to the Corinthians, you guys weren't any of those things, right? When the Lord called you, not many of you were rich and not many of you were wise and not many of you were powerful along the same three categories roughly. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong and the things that are not to shame the things that are. Those same kind of three rough categories again. He did that so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So in form and in words and in so many ways, it's a call back to Jeremiah 9. The point being that the Lord is delighted by a people who are amazed by him, who tremble at his words and boast in him. So he gets to the end of that here and reminds them of a few things. First in verse 30, in today's first verse, that it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He reminds them what he has said already a few times. We are Christians because of what God did for us. And then he uses four words to unfold some of the manifold blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. He is wisdom for us. Jesus is righteousness for us. Jesus is sanctification for us or holiness And he is redemption for us. All this building up to that great finish. Let the one that boasts, boast in him. Look what he has done for us. So what he's doing here rhetorically is he's just amazing us with what God has done. So that we wouldn't be so absorbed with ourselves. So that we would boast in the Lord instead. And I pray the Lord does that in my heart and in each of our hearts today. So what I want to do is walk through first the quick reminder in that because of him you are in Christ Jesus, which we've already talked about. And then the real meat, the new material today is those four words, four blessings that Jesus is for us. So first, the quick reminder, he says in verse 30, it's because of him that you were in Christ Jesus. Uh, This echoes what he has already said in verse 9, which we talked about in that sermon, and what he said in last week's verses, God chose the weak to shame the wise, he chose the poor to shame the rich. Uh, He's essentially saying, the reason you are a Christian is because of God. God did a tremendous work and has made you one of his people. Now, in saying this, he's not negating the fact that certainly you did some things along the way, right? You listened to the gospel. You made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Those things are real. But who could ever say, I came to Christ all on my own and God had nothing to do with it, right? Uh, He's saying things like this, lest we think to ourselves, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm smarter than the person who was next to me in the pew that day, right? That's why I'm a Christian and he's not. Or, 
Well, yeah, I was on a quest for truth, a noble quest for truth, and I figured it out. I figured the gospel out. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? No, God does a mighty work to bring the gospel to us, to open our ears, to hear it, to soften our hearts, to receive it. And we respond and we come to him with all that we have. So he begins then by quieting our pride that might want to boast in how great our faith is and how awesome we are. He says, no, it's because of, it's because of the Lord that he's done that. I'll leave you with that reminder if that's interesting to you, the sermon on verse 9 would be something that you would want to check out. But because we've already talked about that thoroughly, I'm going to move on to the new material he gives us here. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Right? So in heaven waiting for you, you have every blessing imaginable because of Jesus Christ. How many things do we have in him? You can't count them up. You can't number them. Here he lists off four of them. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so where I want to spend the bulk of the time today is just examining how is Jesus each of those things for us? And what is it that makes him such a treasure to the followers of Jesus Christ? Before we get there, I probably need to tell you what a Christian is. What kind of people is he talking about here? Uh, a Christian, the kind of person Paul's talking about, is someone who depends on Jesus Christ for salvation from all of the world's problems. Uh, this is a person who understands that they have sinned before God, and that's a great problem. A person who understands that death comes for all of us and that that's a big problem. Who understands that judgment is real and we deserve to be judged and that's a big problem. And who looks to Jesus Christ for salvation from those things because he died to pay for sins and he rose from the dead to guarantee life forever. And what's more, Christians look to Jesus for salvation from everything. There is oppression in the world today. There is sickness in the world today. There is poverty in the world today. Some of us cannot meet our bills, but Christians hold out a hope that Jesus will return and he will take care of all of those things as well. So whether it be now through his shed blood and resurrection for big problems like judgment and death, or whether it be in the future when he comes back to rid the world of all problems, we look to him for salvation. And we find great blessing in him because he is God made man and he is worthy to secure all of these things for us. Now, if that's you, these words we're talking about are about you. If you're like, yeah, I trust Jesus in that way for that kind of salvation. If you don't look to him like this, I want to call you now and I'll call you again later. Look to him in that way. Trust him in faith and find forgiveness of your sins, guaranteed resurrection from the dead, and so many blessings beside. Either way, the four words Paul gives us here help us understand just how much of a gift Jesus is for us. So let's walk through them. The first one is wisdom. So God gives his wisdom to us through Jesus. This unfolds a little bit more of a foundational biblical truth that we talk about a lot here. God is the source of all wisdom. He's the one that made the world, so he knows how it works very well. 
You can take a look around at the universe and say it's incredible, it's amazing, it was crafted with great wisdom. That was God's wisdom that he crafted this with. You can get a microscope out and see even how molecules and the texture of an ant's skin or shell or whatever that is works and say that is incredible. This world was made with great wisdom. All that wisdom is God's. It comes from him. And he loves to give it away very generously. If you've been going here a while, you've heard me say that a few times, right? Uh, so, so much that anyone who comes to him and asks, trusting him, he just gives them wisdom without finding fault in the fact that they aren't wise yet. Uh, so much that if you don't own a Bible, there's probably a blue pew Bible within reach of you right now that you have our permission to just take home with you and you can read truth from him. You can open to the book of Proverbs and find Proverbs that even a child can understand and make sense out of the world with. He has stored up a treasure trove of wisdom already that you can go to whenever you want to. So he loves to give away wisdom. So the foundation there is that he's the source of wisdom. He loves to give away wisdom. You've heard me say that before. What Paul adds to it here is that he gives that wisdom away through Jesus Christ, his son. So that's what he means when he says he has become for us wisdom. It's hard to learn wisdom from God when he's way up there and you can't really hear his voice, right? But if wisdom is wrapped up in human flesh and comes to earth and wisdom now has two feet and has walked alongside of us, and then wisdom has breathed his spirit upon his disciples and said, I am going up to be with the Father, but that's better because I'm leaving my spirit with you. And now that spirit of wisdom, as the book of Isaiah says, dwells in all of his people. Well, now there's not just wisdom, there's wisdom for us. Like now we can get to it. Now we have words written by that very spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, by which we can learn wisdom. And so Jesus doesn't just have wisdom. He isn't just a sage. He is wisdom itself. That's why he can say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, You might expect that he would say, I know the way, I have the truth, and I give the life. But he just says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because he just is truth wrapped up in the flesh. This is why we can read in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then read in the New Testament that Jesus is that Lord, as it says, our Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship with him is the beginning of true wisdom. And if you are a believer in him, you have access through that. This is why he can say things like, uh, one day they're going to drag you before courts and tribunes to give testimony in my name. But go ahead and settle it now, not to think about what you're going to say, because the Spirit will give you a mouth of wisdom to speak in that moment. How do we have that kind of spirit of wisdom upon us? How is Peter able to rise full of the Spirit and give an incredibly wise sermon at Pentecost? Well, because Jesus has come and breathed his Spirit out upon us, and in him we have access to wisdom. So Christian, rejoice. You can grow so much wiser than you ever thought you could because you have a personal relationship with wisdom himself. So how do you make the best out of that? Right? Well, prize above all 
your relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. You will have life. Right? If we are connected to him, that source of wisdom and life and everything else comes right to him. But if we let ourselves get cut off, right? if the branch says, hey, look at me, I'm green, I'm flowering, I'm bearing fruit, I don't need to be attached to the vine anymore. I'm just going to cut myself off and go over here. What's the branch do? It withers and it dies. right? And in the same way, if we grow wise in Christ and then say, hey, look at how wise I've become. I know how to do stuff now. I don't need to keep going back to him and asking for more wisdom. We cut ourselves off of the vine, and then we begin to become fools again. So in the mornings, if you wake up and you read the scriptures and and tremble before God's glory in the scriptures, uh, you're fighting for your life as you do that, right? You're staying connected to the vine. You remain in him, and his words remain in you. When you hear the word of God preached faithfully and you lean in as some of you are doing and listen to it, you're fighting for your life, right? Because he says, remain in me and my words remain in you. Keep yourself connected to his words and to him personally, not just the things that he says. And you'll find yourself close to wisdom. The Proverbs say the one who keeps the company of the wise himself becomes wise, right? Keep him in close company. You can be in close company not just with a wise person, but with wisdom himself. Hold him close. That's the first thing you can do. The other thing you can do is whatever you're learning about in the world, uh, you can take it to the scriptures and you'll be surprised how much the Bible speaks to everyday things. Is there something you're tinkering in right now and learning? You're getting into cookbooks or maybe spring's coming and you're getting into lawn care and you're learning how to care for lawns or all kinds of things that we love to learn about and get into. You can go to the library, learn all kinds of stuff. Well, if it's cookbooks, just go to the scriptures and ask, well, what do the scriptures have to say about food? Surprisingly, quite a lot, right? And they will give you a grid for wisdom to understand even those recipes and the blurbs that author is writing about it, are they coming from the right place or not coming from the right place? Even cookbooks are infused with philosophy, and the scriptures will give you a grid through which to interpret them. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when I was young, I graduated high school, and between high school and college, I got a job at a golf course. Uh, I was mowing tee boxes, so I just had this power steering mower, and I just had to cut a straight line back and forth, and then a grid the other way, so it looked like a nice, you know, plaid thing on the grass. And my boss was out there teaching me early on, and he said, the most important thing is you, you start with your first cut down the middle, and that cut has to be straight, Right? If you curve that thing and bend it, the, all the other lines based on it, they're all going to come bent. Right? Some of you mow your lawns and you're smiling because you know this. And so the key, he said, is you start on one side of the tee box or the field or whatever, and you just pick one thing on the other side that you're going to focus on. Right? A branch, a blade of grass, a leaf, something that's not going to move. And you just stare that thing down and you go straight towards it. And you don't look to the left or you turn to the left. He said, don't look to the right, you'll turn to the right. Don't look behind you. He said, if a branch comes in and is about to hit you, find a way to do this and keep your eyes on that thing and you will cut a straight line. Don't put your hand on that steering wheel and look back or look around or you won't cut a straight line. 
So I put that in the back of my mind. I learned that. I still do it all the time when I'm mowing the lawn. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was that's the same principle that farmers use to plow their fields. They try to plow straight lines, right? And they put their hands to the plow and they look on the other side of the field and they make sure they plow a straight line and they stare that thing down and they go right there. All of a sudden, Jesus' words, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit to be my disciple, makes sense, right? Even grass and cutting straight lines, even these things are spoken of in the scriptures. You can be learning about anything in the world and take it to scriptures, and it is so surprising how much of everyday life the scriptures have a word for. And I tell you, every time I go in my backyard and cut that first line, those words echo in my ear. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit to be my disciple. So whatever you're learning, take it to the scriptures and ask with a willingness to be surprised, uh, what is it the scriptures say about this topic? And you may be surprised at what you learn. So there's the first thing Jesus becomes for us, true wisdom. The Corinthians had fallen to worldly wisdom. They were full of pride. And he says, you want real wisdom? Come to Jesus Christ. He'll give it to you. Second gift Jesus is to us is righteousness. And what he means when he says that Jesus has become righteousness is that God gives Jesus' righteousness to us, which is a profound thought if you think about it. If you're a believer in Jesus, you probably think of him as very righteous, maybe even if you're not a believer in Jesus. Just consider a moment, how how righteous is this Holy One, Jesus Christ? When he has become our righteousness, the radical thing Paul is saying is that if you're a believer, when God looks at you, that's the righteousness that he sees. Now that feels like heresy as I'm saying that. God would look at me and see that level of righteousness. And yet this is what the scriptures teach. The Old Testament says in many places, his name is the Lord, our righteousness. It says in the New Testament that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so if you have faith in Jesus, your level of righteousness is no longer based on the good things that you did. Now your level of righteousness is based on the good things that he did. How delighted is the father in his son's obedience through those 30-something years of life? How delighted must he be that as a young man, Jesus grew up and never once disobeyed his parents, never once dishonored his parents, that he lived faithfully as a carpenter under his father's instruction and honored him and did honestly in all of his business dealings and then did three years of public ministry and was fully obedient all the way to suffering on a cross that he didn't deserve. How delighted must the father be in his righteousness? And what you get if you have Jesus is credit for that righteousness. He's become our righteousness. Another way to say this is that if you were to try to rate people on a scale of negative 100 to positive 100 on how righteous we all are, 
commit a bunch of sins, you go down all the way to negative 100. Do a lot of really good things, you go all the way up to positive 100. Uh, The fact that Jesus pays for our sin on the cross brings us from negative 100 just up to zero, right? No more sins. All the sins are paid for. Now we're an even zero and get to start over, right? But this truth, which the church has long called imputed righteousness, means that his good deeds, his righteousness, brings us from zero all the way up to positive 100. He doesn't just take our sins upon him. He gives to us the credit for his righteousness. So he has become our righteousness. This is so different from the way that we naturally look at ourselves and the way that the world teaches us to look at ourselves. Uh, There was once, 50, 75 years ago, uh, a wisdom in the world that said, if you're a good, faithful person, well, you can stand on solid ground, right? You go to work, you do a good job, you earn money for your wife and your kids, you treat everybody well, and you can stand tall and say, I'm a good person, right? No need to be insecure because I'm faithful and reliable, right? That's what a righteous person looked like. And now today, there's a new form of righteousness out there, a form of righteousness that says the people who are doing life right are the ones who have found their true selves on the inside and are faithfully expressing that self. They get it tattooed on their body, they're dressing appropriately, they're expressing themselves because they've discovered themselves. And when society's doing its job, it's affirming that person. There is a person who's doing life right. They've discovered themselves and they're living according to their true selves. Others of us would feel secure and like we're doing life right before God when certain things in our life that we really care about are going well. Uh, Some of us feel like we're doing life right if work is going well and we're really successful, and we feel like we're doing life wrong and we must be really messed up if work is not going well. Uh, Some of us take enough pride in our children, an improper form of pride in our children, that we feel like we're doing life right when the kids are being good, and we feel like we're doing life wrong if the kids aren't being good, right? What all of those values have in common is that they're all self-righteousness, right? They're all, I'm good and I'm in the clear because of me. Because I'm doing things the way I think I should be doing things. And what the Christian says is, I messed life up royally. But I have the credit for Jesus' righteousness attached to my name. And so I'm good. And so I'm secure. And so I'm not bothered by what anybody says about me. Because I know what God the Father has said about me. That I am righteous in Jesus Christ. This is something of what it means that he is our righteousness. Christian, you aren't your righteousness anymore. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. So there's the second thing he is for us, our righteousness. Third is what Paul calls here sanctification. Uh, Our translation says sanctification. If you want a word that's easier to understand, holiness would be exactly the same word. Uh, To sanctify something is to make it holy. And so he is not just our righteousness, but he is our holiness as well. So let's do the same exercise we did a minute ago, but about his holiness. Uh, You might imagine how pure and spotless and just radiantly holy Jesus Christ is. 
well, if he is our sanctification, if he is our holiness, that means that when the Father looks upon you to see how defiled or clean or holy is this person, he sees that level of holiness that Jesus Christ earned with his spotless life. This is something the Old Testament prepared Israel to receive. Many aspects of the Old Testament law and prophets taught them to look elsewhere for holiness. They knew they couldn't find it in themselves. Uh, The law kind of had three categories here in this fallen world. Uh, Most everything in the law was common or clean, regular, normal. Uh, But there are also some things that were unclean. And there were some things that were holy. So you had a few holy things a few unclean things, and the default state is just common or clean or regular. And one of the really puzzling principles in the Mosaic Law was that if something common came into contact with something holy, the common thing would become unclean. May not be what you expected me to say, right? Because when common things come into contact with the holy in a not proper way, oof, right? Unclean. And even when common regular people like all of us or unclean people come into contact with God, we die. Right? Moses says, show me your face. He says, I can't do that. You'll die, right? I'll show you my back. Maybe you'll live with that. Um, the, the priests, the one exception to this was the, the high priest who was the representative of God's people. Uh, once a year, he could go before God in the Holy of Holies where God was. Now, normally, you come into contact with God, and, and it's over, right? The Ark of the Covenant where God lives tips, and Uzzah touches it to steady it, and he dies, right? Nadab and Abihu uh, offer an offering before God outside of the offerings that God told them to offer, and they're gone, right? This is what happens when we come into contact with God. But this high priest has a pure and spotless lamb sacrificed, Right, so it gives its life, and the blood of that lamb comes into contact with the priest. It's sprinkled on its clothes. In some offerings, some of that blood is put on his earlobe, right? And so he's come into contact with the blood of the pure, spotless, sacrificial lamb that died in his place. And it says that makes him holy. And so now that he's holy, he can go into the Holy of Holies and dwell with the Lord on what is called the Day of Atonement. So, regular things, unclean things, and people cannot come into contact with God and survive unless they're made holy by the blood of a spotless lamb. Similar scene in the prophets plays out uh, in Zechariah chapter 3. He has a vision of the high priest in that day whose name was Joshua. And the vision is that Joshua the high priest is standing in God's throne room in heaven before God himself, but he's in ugly rags, just dirty, filthy rags, and he has a turban on his head that's really dirty. And Satan is actually there, and he's accusing Joshua, saying things like, Lord, you cannot allow this filthy person in your presence. Put him down. Kill him immediately. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not an ember from the fire, and has it not touched him? And so he's made clean. And therefore, give him, give him clean garments and put a clean turban on his head, because this high priest is made clean, for, for a coal from the fire has touched him. 
in prophecy, a lot of times being touched by the coal from the fire is a, is a symbol of coming into contact with that sacrificial lamb, right? Your sin's paid for. And so the idea over and over again is if you come into contact with that one, that sacrificial lamb, he makes you holy, and now you can go in the presence of God. Then we read here that because of God, Jesus has become our sanctification, our holiness. What does that mean? It means that if you have come into contact with him, if his blood has touched you through faith, you can't, it's not just that you can go in the presence of God, but you can go in the presence of God because you are holy now. This is what the woman who reached out to touch the corner of Jesus' robe understood. Uh, she had been stricken with an, an issue of, of blood, of feminine blood, for a long time. And in the logic of the law, because that blood is holy and life-giving, and then a common person comes into contact with it, now she's unclean. And so she's been unclean for years. And so she knows, though, if she can just get to Jesus, he can make her clean. And so she pushes through the crowd while he's walking around and gets just the corner of his robe and he stops, and he's like, somebody touched me. I felt power grow out of me. Who touched me? And they try to figure it out, and then she just comes and falls before him. And she said, I knew that if I could just touch the corner of your robe, I'd be clean. And he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Right? Christian, if you can just get your fingertip to one of his stray hairs and just get in contact with him, he will make you clean because his blood has been shed for our sins. If you just hear the preaching of the gospel that he died to pay for sins and rose from the dead, and you believe it, then that blood has touched you and you are holy. That can never be taken from you. That is so different from the way some of us feel about ourselves. Right? Some of us look at our pasts and we think about something we did or something that was done to us and we just feel dirty. All right? And, and whatever you do, you can't go back and undo that thing and make that thing to never have happened. And so the feeling just sticks with you. I, am, I did that. I am dirty. And the Lord says, well, not if you've come into contact with Jesus Christ. No, because he is our sanctification and he has made you holy. And so what you have to do is trust that that is true in faith. And no longer look at yourself through that lens of the things that you have done or the things that have been done to you, but look at yourself through that lens of a holy one, Jesus Christ, who has died for you. Trust in him and you will find in him pure and perfect holiness. There may be times when you will need to say, along with the prophet Zechariah, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, right? Whose voice is it that is telling you that you are dirty and defiled even though you've come in contact with Jesus Christ? That's the accuser telling you that, right? That's your old master trying to tell you that he's, you're still his and he could do whatever he wants with you. But you've got the authority to say through the words of that prophet, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Jesus Christ has touched me and I am clean forever. That's what you've got in Jesus. He is your sanctification. All right, last word we're going to look at is redemption. And what we take from that is that Jesus' death purchased us from slavery to sin to serve God. So the word redemption is not something you hear in everyday speech today. Outside of church, you may not hear it much of anywhere. 
But in the first century, and especially among the Jewish people, it was a word used all the time, that they understood this word. The Jews and the Gentiles had a different grid for it, but it meant the same thing. So to the Jews, they heard the word redemption and they thought about the exodus, right? That was the word they used for the exodus. This is the day when the Lord, at great price and much blood was shed that day, bought the people and saved them out of slavery to Pharaoh so that they could serve him. Remember Moses' words before Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, right? That's what the Lord wanted, not just to free them, but free them so they could serve him. And in the first century Roman world, uh, it was a world that had problems like ours, and one of theirs was slavery. The slave markets were thriving and buying and selling people all the time. And one of the things that you could do in the first century, if someone you loved was in slavery, you could go to the market and you could buy them so they could be set free. Right? And that was called redeeming someone. You could redeem them out of slavery if you had enough money to do it. And fascinatingly, what would happen is if you did that, they would carve a contract into these stone tablets that say, this person has redeemed this other person out of slavery for the price of so and so much talents or shekels or whatever. And so this person now belongs to the gods. They are now the property of the gods. And they would take that stone tablet and they would take it into the temple of Zeus or Artemis or whoever it was they were worshiping, and it would be kept there. That was the legal file that this person was free. The logic was they'd been bought out of slavery, and now they're the property of the gods. So they both had this concept of being purchased out of slavery, and now you're free to serve God. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul says in Romans 6 and in the surrounding chapters and words that we were once slaves to sin, which means that when it wanted to and it exercised enough strength and power, we really couldn't say no to it. Right? We're just, it was our master. We were forced to do what it wanted us to do. We were free as much as it wanted us to be free. And when temptation flared up, well, we couldn't hardly say no to it. But now... Because Jesus died for sins, we are bought with blood. There's now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and it has no power over us. So now, here we are free, but we're free to serve God. Now we belong to God. And so his strong exhortation to them is to live in that freedom. Now, that's very important. If we've been bought out of slavery to sin and now we're free to serve God, uh, the thrust he's going to give to the Corinthians here is, guys, stop living in immorality. Stop falling to pride. Stop falling to worldly wisdom. You're not slaves to that stuff anymore, right? And he says in Romans, uh, let not sin reign over your body to make you obey its passions. That may not be Romans, but it's in the scripture. It's Paul who says it, to make you obey its passions. So what we have to do is go from just believing that we're free to fully embracing that freedom and living in it. We have been redeemed, but we have to live in that freedom. That's why it's still possible to obey sin when it comes calling for you. You got to live in that freedom. This is really sadly how slavery and captivity tend to work in people. 
I have talked to people who minister to former trafficking victims, and they tell very similar stories. One who works overseas, he rescues his organization, rescues girls that are being trafficked, and they keep them safe in this house from, from the predators, and then try to incorporate them back into real life. And he said, you know, this might surprise you and sound terrible, but we have bars on the windows. And we're like, what? Um, he said, yeah, because you would not believe how many of them try to escape out of a one-foot-by-one-foot window and slide down 20 feet of house so they can run back to their old life. Because there's a difference between being free, where your old handler can't get to you anymore and has no power over you, versus feeling free and living free. Those are two different things. And much of that rehab work is teaching these people to live free and feel free. I read a story in the news yesterday about the same thing. Maybe you read this too. There's a zoo in Romania that was keeping a panda in captivity. Now, zoos do that all the time, but this zoo was a little more cruel. And they kept the panda in the captivity in a cage that was maybe eight feet by eight feet, just a small cage. And people would come and watch this panda just pace around in a circle in this cage. Uh, terrible way to treat a creature like that. And so some people saw that and said, that's not cool. And so this rescue organization somehow got the panda freed. I don't know if they bought it or what, and rehabilitated it, taught it how to live back in the woods. And the panda's living free now in the woods. Uh, There's a picture of the panda in the article. And what you see is about an eight-foot diameter donut that it has carved into the ground because it just constantly walks in an eight-foot diameter circle. Uh, The headline is, Freed Panda is still pacing in an imaginary cage. Uh, It does not understand that it's free and the cage is gone. Now, I say that because the Christian life often winds up feeling like that. You tell a young man who is into porn that he's free of it now in Christ, Or you tell someone who is into drugs or who was constantly losing their temper, you're free of that sin in Christ. And they're going to tell you, sure doesn't feel like it, right? Feels like I can't stop doing this, right? Because we may be free, but we're like that panda just pacing around in an imaginary cage. What does that panda need? That panda needs to know that it's free, right? And what do you need if you can't break free from those sins of the past? If, they, if you feel like when they call to you, you have to obey, you need to know that you are redeemed. It starts with that word right there, that he is our redemption. And he has freed us so that we can serve Christ Jesus. So remember this when it comes calling for you. That's the voice of your old master saying, I still own you and I'll do what I want. Tell it no. You have the power. You're free. All right, so there are four great things that Jesus is for us. Now, as we walk through that, did any of us feel like it would be easy to become absorbed with ourselves right now? All right. 
when we are amazed by the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, there's the cure for modern self-absorption. There's the cure for modern selfishness. Gaze upon Jesus Christ and see what he has done for you. He is wisdom for you. How much wisdom do you have? However much he has given you because he's your wisdom for you. How righteous are you, Christian? Unbelievably righteous because he is your righteousness. How pure and holy are you? Unbelievably holy because he is your holiness. And how free and redeemed are you? Perfectly and completely redeemed because he has bought you with his blood and set you free. Now, do you see the weight now of what he says next? Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. How dare we go out today and boast about our new phones or our new shoes or how good our kids are, right? No, let the one who boasts boast in the fact that we know him. If you're here this morning and you are considering following Jesus Christ, I hope those words show you just something of what you could have in him. Uh, This Jesus offers himself freely to you. And in the strongest way I could possibly say, you must come to him and trust him. Look what you could have. Look look at the misery you're leaving behind and the good things you could have in him. Why would we not cast it all off and chase after him? May the Lord make for himself a people who are amazed by him and who boast only in him. Let's pray.